As folks are finding their seats, be sure there's plenty up here. It is a pleasure to have with us this morning someone who is a very familiar face to many of you and perhaps a new one to others. John Montagna served as leader here at the Washington Ethical Society from 1972 until 2006. Quite a run. And we are delighted to have him back with us this morning to deliver our platform address. Don, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much. Um, being here reminds me that uh, I had the pleasure and privilege of doing this for 34 years. Um, I have to tell you that I would never have worked so hard um, on presenting difficult issues uh, if I didn't know that you weren't going to be here to respond to me. And I especially appreciate that uh, people with different life experiences and experts in science and philosophy and psychology would afterward uh, let me know how I could improve my thinking. <laughs> and I am truly grateful because it developed gifts in me that I am still able to enjoy. So I love this process and it's nice to be back. When I retired back in 2006, I was going to finish a book entitled Can You Believe in Good? Uh, over these last uh, 11 years. I've gotten distracted uh, by international partners. Um, Wes founded IP uh, almost 20 years ago. And one Sunday, uh, Ken Davis pointed out that if you're a humanist, you have to uh, care about everybody. Uh, since almost half of humanity uh, lives in extreme poverty, we started taking delegations to live and work uh, in uh, very rural, poor communities in El Salvador. So today, uh, IP has brought about 700 people uh, building water systems and education centers and um, uh, fish tanks and roads. Um, IP uh, built five education centers, which we operate, uh, which has books and computers and classes and internet, uh, things that just don't, aren't in the overcrowded um, schools. Um, and schools half a day, so we do the other half day. Um, we also have for classes in math and things. Uh, IP also built a training center uh, that employs 45 full and part-time people where there are no other jobs. Uh, a disability program, uh, we found that there are, uh, people with disabilities are isolated in their homes, hidden, literally. They don't come out of their houses. Uh, that means they don't get any services or social relationships. So we've created a program that they get, they get both. Uh, we've got a milk program that goes to seniors and children. We have a scholarship program, um, elementary to university, um, a uh, and, and we also train people who are elected to their uh, community as leaders don't necessarily have any experience leadership. In fact, half of them don't read or write. So we uh, do this training uh, to help them plan and implement development projects. Um, and all of this is thanks to actually many of you, uh, people who uh, fund all these efforts. Well. When you have been there for, I've been, since we started it earlier, it's been about um, 18 years um, that we've been doing this, uh, you get to know people by name. And when you know people who are suffering, 
um, with our, they don't have painkillers, they don't have antibiotics, they don't have enough to eat, they don't have uh, income to afford to send their children to school. Uh, just bus fare is a big deal when you make $400 a year. Um, all of that, the, the, it tends to distract you uh, from writing a book about doing good, and so much it has. Uh, still, I remain committed to the task of providing an intellectual foundation uh, for religion that is consistent with science and reason. I believe it actually is the most important question uh, facing us today, uh, even if it never feels quite as urgent as people in peril. Now, my thesis is simple, perhaps controversial, but simple. I believe that there exists a natural force for good that empowers us when we align with it. And it's like physical health or physical phenomena. We need to understand these ethical, spiritual laws that actually are governing our lives, whether we know it or not. So today, I want to talk a bit about why we need a clear philosophy of life, um, the changing concepts of God, uh, the nature of the spiritual ideal. Spiritual ideal is like a generic word for God. Uh, the nature of the spiritual idea and how it governs our lives. And finally, our role in creating a better world. Now, why do we need a clear philosophy of life? Well, like all babies, we're born, um, you and I are ignorant. You know, from childhood, we start self-selecting from our family and society the concepts of the world uh, and how it works. The, the greater the congruity between the internal concepts we adopt and reality, the better we manage our lives. For example, people who think that rocks are hard and live in stone houses, um, well, uh, excuse me. Uh, on the other hand, the people who think that rocks are made up of moving particles live in steel and glass uh, buildings. If you think um, people prefer to cooperate, you tend to look for common ground. If you think people are selfish and competitive, you uh, struggle to be first. Um, if being good seems foolish and uh, being successful seems wise, smart, then cheating uh, and exploitation seem justified. So our decisions and our behavior uh, in our lives, therefore, arise out of these basic assumptions, whether we are aware of what assumptions we've made or not. Now, most children born into Western civilization are introduced to a world as a place where God in heaven cares for us and expects in return our good behavior. That's the total context of which most of us, I think, were born into. At least that's the one society suggests we should have. Now, as we mature, this simple, clear image becomes clouded, doubts, disbeliefs, and then some of us reject the man-god paradigm as the context within which we live. Now, while many of us prefer skepticism to blind faith, to create a good life, it's really not enough to be clear about what you don't believe. Uh, it's, it's what we do believe that shapes our thinking our actions, and whom we become, the world we create, and how our life turns out. So ultimately, our lives are shaped not by what happens to us, but, but how we respond when we're faced with any kind of uncertainty, whether that's an opportunity, a conflict, a misfortune. How we respond in those moments determines what direction our life is going to go from then on. And our, habit, our habits of how we respond um, uh, have great influence on who we are and what we do. So when we lack the clarity about what we value most, 
we can get carried along by external circumstances, the ambitions of others, or maybe some inner compulsions or, or, or addictions or angers or fears. That, that's what motivates us. But in those moments of uncertainty where there's no other guidance, uh, uh, we all have, in Tillich's world, uh, some ultimate concern that shapes the choices we make. When our ultimate concern doesn't match what our true needs are, then we're out of reality. We are living alone in our own world. And so our interface with the world is constantly in conflict. If we are not aligned with reality, reality catches up with us and runs us down. We don't get where we want to go. Uh, we bang into people. We create pain for ourselves, other people. And without knowing it, uh, and, and we never know how to make it better, because our model is just not working. Now, all of us have part of our model that works and part of it doesn't. The goal is to have a comprehensive model that is as accurate as possible. And that's a lifetime job to constantly improve it. But being clear about it, being conscious of it, is what I'm trying to stress right now. Fortunately, life lets us know whenever we're out of reality. All of our frustrations, our disappointments, and our conflicts show us where we need to correct our inner map. We, we, if we pay attention and we don't blame other people or on the problems or our circumstance on the problems, but we take the assumption that I'm banging into something or something's not working because there's something wrong with my concept of what I ought to do right now, if we take that, that's how we get a more and more accurate, uh, a better, uh, uh, a clearer uh, sense of our own concepts of how the world uh, might work. And, and then we manage our life better. So my first point is that there's nothing more important than your conscious and evolving concept of reality, becoming conscious of it and making it as accurate as possible. Okay. Second, I, I want to talk about the changing concept of God as the context within which we live. Now, if a person rejects living uh, as if the man-god metaphor defines reality, then we enter another metaphor that defines the context within which we live. The human brain operates by concepts. Uh, uh, as, as a computer needs an operating, operating system, uh, we cannot function. We can't think. We can't without some inner system of understanding. Now, an alternative to the man-god metaphor is a, a secular metaphor. When the arena uh, becomes social institutions and material success, those are what define who we are and how we should behave and give meaning to the purpose of our life. So it's the second most common uh, besides the man-god notion. Now, the environment of secularism is actually human society, not otherworldly, but human society itself, its laws, its institutions, and of course our material needs. Those become the parameters. Before the 20th century, there were no public schools or hospitals or libraries. Churches operated all social institutions. They meant we were surrounded by the man-god concept of reality and the experience of being cared for by God, God's kindness, was just there whenever we uh, needed a social institution. Well, now our formal education obviously comes from secular schooling. Our successes are in the realms of family, career, politics, rather than being right with God. 
we get our values um, uh, from whatever social norms are, are currently popularized uh, in, in, in the secular culture. So for secularism, religion is like a club. It's a personal option. It's not a way of life. Materialism is measuring yourself by whether you own more or less. Your material security is how, if you're okay or not. Now, throughout human history, the default value system uh, for those who opt out of a religious metaphor and into that secular material world has been value system of might makes right with individuals pitted against each other. Might makes right allows for doing whatever you can get away with, basically. Uh, bullying, manipulating, exploiting, dominating, domination if you're wealthy enough, war to gain advantage. Might makes right is acted out in our marriages, in our friendships, in our workplace, in our political world. If you've got the power to do it, do it. Might makes right generates, however, a compulsive need to be better than, or certainly not to be worse than. Yet, what you do to others, you always have this nagging fear that someone is going to do it to you. And when the day comes that the economy crashes, no more job, business, or when you get sick, which does happen, when you get old, which of course won't happen, <laughs> um, needing help, when you need help, suddenly might makes right, doesn't work. Even when successful, the material hunger is never satisfied. You always want more because satisfaction is a spiritual experience. Good and bad circumstances, your material achievements, don't determine whether you're happy or not. Studies of lottery winners repeatedly show that money does not lead to happiness. While people living in extreme poverty, surprisingly, are often happy. That depends on their quality of their relationships, not their creature comforts. Now, secular society may perform good social work, uh, acts of charity, that meet the material needs of people, but they are insufficient because they sustain the body while ignoring the spirit. The challenge for us who live in a secular metaphor is not to become merely tools for achieving practical goals without some reflection on what, how what we are doing is affecting our spiritual well-being. That becomes our challenge. Phil Sadler wrote that the most important religious question is how you define spirituality. Now, when I read that, I had long before dismissed the word as spiritual, as being rather empty. But humanistic spirituality does not define spiritual as something supernatural or ghost-like. Spirit is the animating vitality within all living beings. You may recall the humanistic cross. The horizontal line is the lifeline from birth to death. We have moments of time, and in all these moments of time, there's some incident, some situation. But the quality of our life isn't determined by those moments, by those incidents, situations. The quality of life is determined by the vertical line, the animating vitality that we bring to those moments. What the 
determines the quality of our life is not what happens to us, but the spirit which we bring to what is happening and how that what is happening impacts our vitality. Now, in the lower vertical part of our cross, we are unhappy, depressed, struggling with conflicts, repeating mistakes, addicted to destructive behaviors. And that's what we bring to our moment of time. At the top, we are happy. We're creative. We're in harmony with people, with purpose. Our spiritual goal is supreme being. Supreme being. Now, the spiritual ideal, remember the generic name for God, is not a person or a noun. Supreme being is a verb, a way of being at its best, experiencing very, very, very high animating vitality. Finding supreme being has always been the essential task of religion, all religion, all time. Through most of human history, people could not read or reason. So religion used God's stories to pass down the rules of reality, God's laws. God's laws were distilled by trial and error after centuries and centuries and centuries. And through this story of God makes this true, they're in there. And God rewards and punishes us. You know, the, the word sin comes from the Greek, which uh, means mistake. So we're not punished for our sins. We're punished by our mistakes. The biblical prophets redefine the will of God by evolving understanding what creates and destroys supreme being. They're just watching it. And so as they get clearer and clearer, the biblical stories changes the concept of God. Uh, they de always depict God as an authority with uh, the most admired authority of, of the era. Uh, for example, in, again, the Old Testament, the first biblical image of God is as a lord. Um, he is, my will be done or uh, feel my vengeance without mercy. Uh, he, the Lord uh, begins by uh, condemning all women to the pain of childbirth for the disobedience of Eve. Then we can read in the Old Testament that Noah, when he ark lands, um, he has a conversation with God, and he says, look what you've done. I mean, the smell of this place, all the dead animals and plants, gross. God says, I guess I overreacted. It, it, look it up, this is what he said. I'm serious, look it up. Um, I guess I'll make a deal that I will never again kill everybody for the sins of some. In, in fact, I'll create a rainbow to remind me. Then we come to the moment when God asks Isaac to sacrifice his son just to prove his loyalty. So Isaac negotiates. He said, in the Noah covenant, covenant, didn't God promise that he would not kill everybody for the sins of some? True. Then it wouldn't be just maybe to kill a thousand for the sins of some? Well, probably not. Uh, how about a hundred? No. 
Ten innocents could die for some? No? What about one? And so that is the end of human sacrifices in the name of God. Every person counts as a sacred being and in, inviolable. And then next, God is depicted as a king. At a time when the king is the most admired persona. Awesome. And God the king cares for his people if they follow his laws. And this is the early age of law writing, and Moses presents the Ten Commandments as the will of God. Honor your parents, keep your word, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill. Next, the image of God is as a judge, wisely rewarding and punishing good and bad behavior. He's fair to everybody. He's no longer the vengeful Lord. And then finally, Jesus. Jesus, again, changes the image of the spiritual ideal by calling God Abba, which literally means daddy, making God a divine father who loves all of humanity as his family, with, with every person, one of God's children, responding to sin with mercy. Adler writes, is not this heavenly father a beautiful, tender, consoling image? To him, we could ever come as children saying, Father, protect us. Father, deliver us. Father, forgive us. Nevertheless, what almighty, loving father would bestow on his children the tragedies of war, crime, hunger, disease, and oppression if he could spare them? Is the all-loving, omniscient, uh, omnipotent God not enough, not knowing enough, not loving enough, not good enough, not powerful enough to protect his children from the evils of famine, flood, disease, and violence. Now, since the Enlightenment, this logical inconsistency has undermined the belief in God, turning Western civilization towards natural rather than supernatural explanations for how the world works and turning the world closer to the secular material worldview. Thus, the power of religion has been declining. Church attendance in Europe is about 10%. Well, 25% of Americans actually attend church regularly. Religion has lost its power to control the social norms that are promoted by secular materialism. Therefore, the reason that we need a new intellectual foundation for the spiritual ideal to replace that man-God is to strengthen religious communities. Religion is the only social institution that cultivates our spiritual and ethical well-being. Government, business, schools, even family have primarily a material mission. Without attention to our spiritual well-being, to the ethical quality of our relationships, we become mere carriers of wooden water. Those who dismiss the man-god metaphor need to recognize that it is intended to represent reality, not become reality. The nation's flag is sacred, not because of the quality of the cloth, but because it represents our nation. The wedding ring symbolizes our enduring love, but the ring itself has no power to sustain our marriage. The blind woman holding scales, if she disappears, justice will remain. Adler writes, 
Theists who fear that without God there would be no good must renew their faith in good. Good will never disappear, for it is the source of power which God, quotes, represents. Adler goes on, it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. What is important is what you think a loving God expects of you. And if you don't believe in God, the question that remains is whether you believe in the validity of the spiritual ethical laws that God is intended to represent. That's the question. Do we really believe that ethics is a nice person option? Or is it fundamental to reality such that violating it has always got a cost and living with it gives us power? Question. Historically, the best way to teach and enforce these living by ethical laws was through these God stories in which a supreme being is depicted as a divine authority. With a hierarchy on earth, the hierarchy is such that all the political leaders and the priests and the bosses and the parents, they dispense the will of God, that part of that whole model. Um, the supreme rule really is, in the man-God metaphor, is obey your superiors as representatives of God. And Central America has probably been the, by far the most destructive idea. Um, and the Civil War and the Renaissance came when a group of, of, of priests began saying, no, it's not top-down. It is uh, God wants each of you to develop. An Enlightenment idea uh, is credited for causing the Civil War because people started speaking up on their own behalf started getting an education, which they never had before. Now, for millennia, hierarchies were seen as the highest ideal. The Egyptians made pyramids to memorialize the power of a pyramid. The Romans perfected the pyramid power in organizations. A, a, a Roman general like Mario could defeat a million European barbarians with 50,000 soldiers because he could talk to 10 people who talked to 10 people who could talk to 10 people, and his army could turn, charge, hold, retreat, while the enemy horde made up of individuals were unable uh, to communicate, direct, be directed by their leaders. So today we know from studies of organizational development, hierarchies are efficient at following orders, but not creative because they don't use the potential of all the individuals. Now, in an age of democracy, how can we stand in awe of an authoritarian, benevolent dictator, king or father, as the highest, most admired, the most ideal. We live in an age of interactive creativity where the internet is the image of all people with access to all information and ideas and able to uniquely weave them together to contribute their own. That's the image today which is seen as the highest. Amazingly, that is the image that Adler conceived of nearly 150 years ago to replace the hierarchy as the spiritual ideal. Adler's aim was to postulate an ideal and derive principles that if followed would cultivate that ideal, uh, pretty much as we do with health. You know, this is what we think ideal health is, and these are the habits which we think will get there. Now, violating these principles would be a mistake because it would create a less than desirable world, and we'd have to live with that. Adler called this vision of the spiritual ideal an organic manifold. Now, 
the word manifold means many different, well, united in one. And it expresses the paradoxical nature of reality. For example, human beings are individuals. We end at our skin and realize our own birth, our own death. We feel our own pain. We make our own choices. We lead our own lives. But without others, we just don't develop, literally. We don't learn. We don't talk. We don't read. We don't reason. We don't function in the world if we're alone. Uh, you know, once the cardinals elected a pope at a time of great turmoil, they needed the best person, so they took the purest and the holiest person they could find. He was a man who had dedicated his whole life uh, to God and lived in a cave as a hermit to be pure as he could. And they elected him to the Vatican, and he immediately made a box about that big, and he sit, stepped inside of it. An individual's life depends on being part of a greater whole a family, a workplace, a society, a species, nature. The great challenge in life is how to integrate what is good for ourselves individually and what is good for our social environment that we live and grow in. We are responsible for both. And when we do not realize that we're responsible for both, we allow our social environment to deteriorate or, deteriorate, or we do not make it its best, and therefore we starve because we don't thrive in those conditions. The hierarchy ideal is replaced by an organic ideal, where everything is connected to everything else in a comprehensive whole, and all eliciting the best from each, all eliciting the best from each part, each part, to create a synergy, where uh, the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. Now, examples of this on a physical realm: organs of our body, unique and essential, work together to create you, a creative being that is greater than the sum of your physical parts. Distinct sounds make music. People create computers, spaceships, schools, hospitals, which no one individual could do alone. The interaction of water, air, soil, plants, and animals generates oxygen, carbon dioxide, and an atmosphere, a temperature that makes life habitable, habitable here on Earth. All, the, all of those factors are, 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 are interconnected. They're all each essential. They're each unique. But together, uh, they make something greater than the sum of the parts. In an organic manifold uh, if it is, is our spiritual ideal. What values would it be required? Okay. So if we're going to ideally relate to all other people, all other parts, um, uh, in, in, a, in a way that elicits the best, that, that, that I, I mean, creates a synergy, the, the first thing is the concept so familiar to us, and it's familiar to us because Adler conceive that to have an organic manifold, you have to respect the inherent worth of every single person as part of a whole, regardless of how well they're functioning. To decide a person is unworthy, for whatever reason, would be a subjective decision that could be turned on you. You don't fit my values. I don't think you're functional enough. So suddenly, um, uh, the organic manifold falls apart. To remain alive, all the organs of our body have a role to play creating the whole. All our body, uh, all, all are part of our body, uh, no matter how well that part is functioning, it's still part of it. Now, to disrespect the horn section thus makes the symphony not quite as good. An example of this is the female half of our species disrespected as less than equal, 
they have been denied opportunities to claim their full capacities, rendering them the most valuable underutilized resource in the world. In IP communities, we've built water systems as a priority, uh, which a priority that communities actually create, so that women don't have to walk for about three hours carrying water uphill to their houses. And so now the women have that time, and they use it to study, to bring kids to school, to volunteer at education centers, to earn money. When we leave someone out as being not worth the attention, uh, we pay a price. The second concept, another familiar one to us, is that we need to respect people by eliciting their best. That defines our relationship with all others. That means that we have to provide the gift of opportunity so everyone can claim their full capacities. But it also means that we're fallible and that we make mistakes. We act badly. We disrespect others. And so our role is to find within the person who is acting badly, find the best in them and elicit that out. This requires skill and practice, but to, to simply retaliate when people act bad or criticize or ostracize, what you're doing is you contaminate. We contaminate our environment, and we encourage that kind of negative. We have to learn to elicit the best when we face the worst. And from these two principles, respecting inherent worth and enlisting the best, come all ethical values. And these values are absolute. That is absolute in that if to violate them always has a negative consequence, preventing you from achieving the ideal. Uh, whether that negative outcomes are visible or immediate or delayed or unseen, they're there. Um, finally, unlike morals that are based on um, customs uh, that change by culture and time, ethical values are absolute in, in, in all cultures at all times. While slavery was once considered moral, it was never ethical. And while dancing some considered immoral, it was never unethical. What behaviors would be required to achieve what the ancient Greeks called this state, they called the state melos, uh, the harmony of all things. To respect the worth and listen to the best, we would have to tell the truth, not represent, misrepresent reality. That's very destructive when we misrepresent it. Be kind. We have to treat people, especially when in need, as you wish to be treated. To be fair, act so that you're willing to accept a bargain. Any bargain you offer, you're willing to accept. You have to be fair. We have to be trustworthy. Our connections with each other are all agreements. I have more agreements with my wife than I do with strangers in the street, but with them, I still know which side of the uh, street to drive on. We have agreements. That is what relationships are. If we break those, if we consciously or unconsciously don't keep our agreements, we create an environment of distrust around us, disconnect around us. And finally, Forgiveness and mercy. We all make mistakes from which we learn from consequences. But they're not to be vengefully punished. They're opportunities, trial and error learning. Now, eliciting the best behaviors creates a condition in which human beings thrive. If you have any doubt, just imagine the reverse. If people around you are cruel, dishonest, unfair, and vengeful, are you going to thrive? Every time we do not live up to the values required to create that the, the organic monofold, we damage people and culture all around us and thereby ourselves. Living by these values isn't easy. We have to learn it. We have to practice. But the first step is to recognize that they are as real as physical laws of nature and that they always have consequences. The spiritual ideal that we seek exists not in some future time, 
toward which we're going to evolve or get better. It's a possibility in every moment waiting for us to manifest it. When we do, we feel a special energy, a delight like no other, an animating vitality. Supreme being is what we feel. In every moment that we do good, we know it. Not by the immediate results, but by the mysterious sense of satisfaction. Now, our highest purpose in life is to be an ethical agent. We know when to act because in any difficult situation, it hurts. We know when someone has just harmed someone, it, you feel it, you know it. Our challenge is to learn how to elicit the best in these moments to make that interaction kinder, fairer, more honest, more respectful. And we cannot escape being an ethical agent. We always make our world better or worse by how we respond to those moments. Dante wrote, the hottest place in hell is reserved for those who face a moral crisis and remain neutral. I believe that every time a person stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the life of someone else, he or she sends out a tiny ripple of goodwill that joins other ripples and becomes a current strong enough to sweep away the, the, the oppression, personal and political. Now, when Adler was accused of being an atheist, he denied it. He said, in an age of democracy, should we idealize a benevolent dictator and call it our god? Is it not blasphemous to place a man-god in the sky and kneel before it as if that image were an idol? Along with all the great religious leaders of history, I believe there's a higher standard of religious truth. I believe that God and good are one, and the experience of God dawns on us in the act of doing good. So that is why our faith, my faith, is in God, spelled with two O's.